Well, good morning. It's good to be here with you as we worship our God together. Um, before we start and before we open in prayer, I'd like to just share a message with you that I got this morning. Um, Angie's been in correspondence with Mary Long in Thailand. Uh, for those of you who don't know, the, the Longs have been involved in Thailand for, I think, about the last 40 years, and they've been working with the Yellow Leaf tribe uh, and helping the Yellow Leaf people um, to, um, to, to live uh, their life expectancy uh, going beyond the, the 30, 40 years that it was before. And uh, they've been ministering, particularly this last few years, to a young girl that has brain cancer. And they've been her grandma, grandpa, and been taking her back and forth to the hospital. And it's been a means of, of connecting with the people uh, who they've gotten to know over these last decades, but also um, uh, to be sharing the gospel in ways that, that they haven't seen um, in, in the past. Uh, and, and so it's just been wonderful to see how God's using that and for the, the gospel to be proclaimed there. Uh, for those of you who don't know, um, Jean, um, Jean uh, had um, something happen a few weeks ago. Um, it's, uh, they're not really sure what's happening, but there's lots of um, uh, anxiety and, and inability to communicate and be a part of things, um, to do anything digital. And so for those of you who get his emails or are used to getting those emails all the time, uh, he just hasn't been able to be doing those things. And so it's affecting him in some really strange ways that, that they, they can't explain. But um, just got an update, and I thought I'd share that with you so that we could be praying for Gene specifically this morning. Um, Mary writes that the appointments went well. Uh, both the doctors were pleased with his progress in communication and reflexes, uh, but no diagnosis for what is causing all this. Uh, the psychiatrist doctor said he has never seen a case like this. Uh, the neuro doctor wants to monitor his blood work. Uh, he goes back on the 19th, and so please let the church know how much we appreciate their financial support. Uh, Gene cannot function on the computer, so I'm going to have to find the mailing list and learn how to do all the monthly letters. Uh, pray for me as I'm not a computer-savvy person, but willing to learn, all, all for now. And so... Um, just want to take some time to um, specifically pray for Jean and Mary. They're an uh, important part of the life of our church body, and we love them very much. They've visited here a few times over the years, and um, we've um, really appreciated the ministry that they've been participating, participating in in Thailand with the Yellow Leaf tribe, but also particularly love how they've incorporated us into that ministry and given us the opportunity to, to be a part of that, to, to pray with them and uh, during my sabbatical last year, our, ten, our intention was to go to Thailand, and we weren't able to do that because of the pandemic, but uh, they were, they were um, very excited to have us come, and they're very welcoming and, and hospitable um, uh, and looking forward to it. And so hopefully at some point we'll be able, still be able to do something like that, but uh, let's, let's lift them up in prayer right now as we turn to God's Word. Father in heaven, we, we come before you and we, we lift up our brother in Christ we, uh, and our sister Mary. We thank you for Jean. We thank you for Mary. We thank you for their ministry over these decades, their faithful service, their love for this people that, um, that many people didn't even really believe they existed. They just were some ghost tribe that never stayed in one place. And um, you, you gave them persistence. You gave them a heart for this tribe of people that had never heard the gospel, who had never had the opportunity to have modern medicine and to um, build houses you, you gave them the opportunity to, to love these people, to care for these people, to, to extend the length of their lives, to give them a trade and help them to cultivate that trade. And you've given them the ability to share the gospel, most importantly, to tell them the good news of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross for them. And so we thank you for how you are growing those opportunities. We thank you for um, 
this little girl that they've been ministering to and for the, the healing that's taken place there through the, the ministry of the doctors. But Lord, we pray for Gene right now. We pray and lift him up. That we ask that you would heal his body. That you would, uh, if you would use the doctors, please help them to figure out what, what's causing this. Um, if you would choose not to use the doctors to heal him, we pray that you would just touch his life and that he would wake up in the morning and be new. Uh, and be able to just praise You for Your miraculous providential hand. And so we lift them up. We pray that You would encourage them. We pray that You would help Mary and give her the strength that she needs not only to communicate and do all the digital stuff and emails, but, but just the strength daily to help care for her husband and to, uh, to go through this time uh, of lots of uncertainty. Help us to encourage them and to love them. Father, as we turn our attention to Your Word and to the book of Hebrews, I pray that You would teach us once again. I pray that Your Spirit would illuminate our minds, that He would shed light on sin, that He would show us the necessity of Your Word in our lives. Father, I pray that, that You would use Your Spirit to transform our hearts and our lives, that we would glorify and honor You in the way that we walk, the way that we think, the way that we talk, and the way we treat one another. Please bless this time, we pray. Amen. Well, uh, Friday evening, our son Michael boarded a plane and started his journey back stateside after being in Japan for almost uh, three years, or the, really the most of the last three years. Uh, he arrived in Oregon yesterday afternoon where he's going to start his next position next week. Uh, but more importantly, he arrived in Oregon where he was able to spend the afternoon yesterday with a lovely young lady that he's been corresponding with for some time. Uh, Long-distance relationships and correspondence, even when you have video calling and you're able to do all the YouTube thing, and you know, he talks to me about you know, some of the dates that they go on, you know, and so they watch a movie together and they're, on, they're half a world away. Uh, dating today is so different from when I grew up. Um, but correspondence in this long-distance relationship, even with video calls, can be challenging. You're, you're half a world away, and, and you look forward to actually spending time in person with one another rather than doing everything by texts and video calls. But if you could imagine with me it, uh, that a few months go by, and Michael starts behaving a, a little strangely. Okay, maybe that's not so hard for some of us to imagine. But, but imagine, envision this young man sitting across the table from this young lady that he's cultivated this relationship with for, for these last couple years. And envision this young man sitting across the table from this young lady that he's finally able to spend time with, finally able to be around. And he says, you know, I really miss looking at your photograph. I, I, I'm going to go back to it. And he, and he gets up from the table and he walks down the street staring longingly into this picture that he carried around for, for, for the, all this time while he was in Japan. And he walks off into the sunset. And you would say to yourself, he's crazy. How awful would it, would it be that he would do something like that to her? But, but that, my friends, is the message of the book of Hebrews. You see, for centuries, God's people longingly looked forward to the fulfillment of God's promise. Year after year, day after day, they sacrificed animals with the expectation that one day, that somehow, God was not only going to cover their sins with the blood of bulls and goats, but that the promised Messiah, that He would come and that He would 
and that he would in some way make provision, some kind of provision that he would completely not only cover our sins, but that he would forgive our sins completely. God would not only have a relationship with His people through the law which was written on tablets of stone and through a system of of worship that involved priests in an earthly tabernacle, later on a temple, but they looked forward to the day when God would write His law on human hearts and in our minds. And they looked forward to this day that they would worship Him in spirit and in truth. The law, as we've seen, was but a shadow of the good things to come. The Old Covenant, as Hebrews has been showing us, if you will, was essentially a long-distance relationship with the people of God. This long-distance relationship in which the people awaited for the coming of Christ. And when, when He arrived, when He finally came, the shadow was fulfilled and replaced by the real thing. It was, re, it was fulfilled when He instituted this new covenant that we've discussed in chapter 9. And so Jesus introduced Himself. He forgave the sins of those who believe. And then the Holy Spirit came and and now He resides within us even today. But alas, there were many Jews that were starting to think to themselves, you know, I, I really do miss looking at that old photograph. I, I miss the shadow of the real thing. I miss worshiping at the temple. I miss the sacrifices and, and the festivities and watching the high priest go behind the curtain and waiting and waiting for him to come out, come out and, and the celebration when the high priest finally comes out having made atonement on that special day. I miss the Old Covenant. That, and I think I might go back to that. I think I might walk away from this whole church thing and this relationship with Jesus Christ and go back to that old system. And so the author of Hebrews, whoever he was, um, preached this masterpiece of a sermon, and then he pinned it into this epistle that we have today and that we're studying today. And in Hebrews, he eloquently argues that Jesus is supreme. Jesus is superior. Jesus is better. We saw how Jesus is better and superior to the angels. And then we came back to the middle center spoke of the wheel. The center spoke, the, the, the core, the, the hub. He came back to that hub and we saw, again, Jesus is superior. Not only is Jesus superior to the angels, but Jesus is also superior to Moses. And we followed that spoke of the wheel and we looked at what that meant and the implications of it. And, and, then, and then we came back to that central hub. Jesus is supreme. And for the last several chapters, we've been following really the heart of Hebrews. And we followed this last major spoke of, of how Jesus is superior as a high priest. And today we come to the conclusion of that section. He's better than the angels. He's better than the Moses. He's better than the high priest. He's a better order than the Levitical priests. He's instituted a better covenant than that which Israel had at Mount Sinai. And He has offered a better sacrifice than the offerings which the Old Testament high priests brought back year after year after year. We've seen that the message for the Hebrews, though, is the same for us, isn't it? I hope you've caught that and I hope you've found ways to, to apply that in your own life and to ask yourself, okay, I may not have this interest in, in going back to the temple. Uh, I, don't know how many, I don't know many of you that, that have you know, gone and, and you've sacrificed bulls and, and rams and, and gone through that whole process. Uh, probably none of you. And so most of us aren't tempted to go back to that system. But there are other things in your life and in my life, all these some things that keep on calling to us and keep on saying, hey, 
that Jesus stuff. Come on back. Don't you remember how fun it was? Don't you remember how, how enlightening it was to be a part of this? And, and whatever that system of worship is that you incorporated in your life, whatever it was that you prioritized before you came to Christ, there are all these somethings. We have that same message before us that Jesus is superior. Jesus is better. We need to remember that going back is just as ridiculous as choosing the photograph over the relationship. Choosing the shadow over the real thing. Choosing the something, whatever all those somethings are, over Jesus. And so today, today we reach the climax of the book of Hebrews. Chapter 10, verses 1 through 18, is where the author is going to pull everything together, particularly this last section that started back in chapter 5. And he's going to summarize his message and he's going to drive it home. Everything after this is going to be exhortation and one more warning passage that we're going to look at, and lots of application of how we persevere in the faith. Chapters 11 through 13 has lots of application for us, but today we're going to focus on this conclusion of what is really the main argument of the book of Hebrews. These opening verses should sound familiar to us because he's, he's going to take the points that he's been making in chapter 9, he's going to pull off of that, he's going to tidy it up into one last contrast between the sacrifices of the Old Covenant and the voluntary sacrifice of Christ in verses 5-10. through 10. Let's start with verses 1-4 through 4 where we're reminded that the law can never make perfect worshipers. Join me. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Again, these are points that he's made in chapter 9. Uh, first, he returns to this idea that the law is just a shadow of what he calls the good things to come. Uh, again, if you will, the, the law is the photograph. Now that Jesus has come, we have the real relationship. And, and so in chapter 9, verse 11, he called Christ a high priest of the good things that have come. And we saw how the earthly tabernacle, uh, when Moses went to Mount Sinai, God says, hey, I want to show you something. And Moses received this vision, and he actually went into the heavenly places, and God showed him the throne room. He showed him the heavenly tabernacle where the worship was, to take, was centralized. And he says, I want you to pattern a tent, and I'm going to come dwell in your midst, and you're going to build a tent that is to replicate and copy the one above. But the earthly tent was the shadow of the real thing above. And so, this earthly tabernacle was this replica of the true place of worship in heaven. It was the shadow of the heavenly tabernacle where Jesus entered after His ascension. It's the real thing. So this shadow was imperfect because the place was only meant to point us to the real thing. And the blood of the bulls and the goats, which were offered every year at the Day of Atonement and, and throughout the year in the sin offerings and the burnt offerings and the peace offerings and the guilt offerings, goes on, doesn't it? All of that was meant to remind us, number one, of the horribleness of our sin. And every time that that animal was, was 
shed, his blood was shed and, and the gruesomeness and the smells of it and, and all the blood, all that was to remind us that this death all around us, this stream of blood flowing through the river was because of our sin. And sin is horrible and it is awful. It's disgusting. It's awful. Awful. It's remind us of the horribleness of our sin, but also it was to point us to our need for a greater sacrifice. Because all the blood of those bulls and goats that they offered all the time, it only covered the sins until a more permanent provision would be made when Jesus offered His blood on the cross. So this Old Covenant system of sacrifices was imperfect because the law can never make perfect worshipers. I should take a moment to remind us that when we use the word perfect in Hebrews, what do you usually think of when you think of the word perfect? When you say, honey, you're perfect. What are you saying? Yeah, without sin. Is that what you think of when you tell your wife she's perfect? (laughs) Without sin. Good. Flawless. What is that? Okay, you've been reading Hebrews. (laughs) Complete, all in all, okay? When I say, honey, you're perfect, she usually says whatever. Uh, But... um, and now I owe her ice cream because I didn't ask her. But, um, you know, when we say uh, perfect, we're thinking flawless, without, without any blemish. Nothing's wrong. But when Hebrews uses that word, he's, he's usually taking that a different direction. And perfect in Hebrews conveys this idea that, that uh, Debbie just mentioned for us of something being complete. Something uh, being, um, uh, being done. It's come to the end that God intended for it. In Hebrews chapter 5 and 7, he uses that same word regarding Jesus, that Jesus was made perfect. Now, does that mean that Jesus had blemishes before, that he sinned before? No. But, but when Jesus was obedient even to the point of death on the cross and he was made perfect, what he's saying is that Jesus brought to completion the plan that God intended for him. He so perfectly obeyed his God that he brought that, that system as the Messiah, as the our high priest to its end, and he accomplished our salvation. And so perfection is not referring to something that was wrong and then made right or broken and then made fixed, although you can apply that certainly about us. But when Jesus was made perfect through suffering, he wasn't broken and then made better. Perfection refers to something that has come to the end of the process. And this Old Testament law, with all of his sacrifices and all the blood that was offered, it could never complete God's plan to put us into a right relationship with the Creator. If you will, it was a, it was a bookmark. It was a holding place that said, until the real thing comes, until the real relationship is here, here's the photograph to remind you of what God is going to do. But it could never complete God's plan. See, the law had inadequacies built into it by its very nature. God intended it that way. It was the point to what was coming. And this is because the law never intended to take away our sins. It couldn't take away our sins. Instead, as verse 3 reminds us, in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. The, The law only made provision to cover sin. It never made perfect those who worship. Now contrasted to this in verses 5-10, through 10, those who are in Christ are sanctified. And again, he's going to use the word sanctify a little bit differently than we normally use it. When we usually think of sanctification, we think of that process in which we are being made holy over a period of time. Hebrews has a different slightly... The, the word means to be made holy. 
And so there is a sense in which we are being made holy. We are becoming more like Jesus over time. But there's also a sense in which you have been sanctified. You have already been set apart. You have been made holy. And that's how Hebrews is going to use that word sanctified. It's that you have already been made holy. And so in Christ, we are sanctified through the offering of His voluntary sacrifice. Now we have a right relationship through Christ because His offering washes away our sins. It doesn't just cover it up. Now here's where he's going to drive the point home. In verses 5-7, through he's going to quote Psalm chapter 40, and, and he's going to demonstrate that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was obedient, that it was voluntary, and that Jesus' sacrifice was once for all, and thus it was better than the Old Testament sacrifices. Before we read the quote from Psalm 40, we need to freshen up our Old Testament history a little bit. We're going to take a little bit of a walk through the Old Testament again. Hebrews isn't just quoting a couple proof texts. You know, sometimes when you write a paper, you want to fill in, you, know, you have a word count that you have to do. Uh, you're shaking your head and going, yep, yeah, yep, yeah, just, fin- just finished all that, right? And, and okay, I've got to have five pages and I need a quote. And so we fill something in to kind of prove our point that somebody else said. That's not what Hebrews is doing. He, he is doing that. He is proving a point, but, but there's something bigger going on. You see, when Hebrews quotes Psalm chapter 40, he, he wants us to understand not only that text, but he wants us to understand the background behind it and the whole story behind it. And as the Hebrew readers would have come to hear this, they would have said, oh, I know exactly what he's talking about. And they would have known the whole history of of these phrases that he pulls out of this psalm. And so we need to understand the background behind what David is talking about before we can really catch the richness of what Hebrews is driving home. So first, we need to travel back in time to the book of 1 Samuel and the reign of Israel's first king, a man named, who was he? Saul. Good. A man named Saul. Saul was an individual who was given every opportunity to succeed. God wanted him to succeed. God gave him so many tools to, to, to use and to grow, and he was filled with the Spirit, and he was given opportunities to lead God's people. And for a while, he did what was right. He was set up for success. However, over the years, Saul's heart wandered away because he wasn't really a man after God's own heart. And he began to follow a pattern of disobedience. Uh, There's a series of different things that he did, but really the final act of disobedience that ends up leading the Lord to declare that he would tear away Saul's kingdom over the next few years took place in 1 Samuel 15. At that time, God had commanded Saul to go to battle. And, and he was to go to battle with a group of people called the Amalekites. I call the Amalekites the black widows of the Old Testament. What do you do with a black widow? Yeah, you, you squish it. You get rid of it. I, I had a tarantula that we kept in my bedroom for, for years. It was beautiful. We loved, we loved Baba Jean. I, I did. But uh, my wife tolerated it. She even bought me a second tarantula for a while. And uh, we'd hold it and cuddle with it. You know, it was just, you know, pet it. And, and it got used to us. And we got used to it. And spiders can be cool. Um, but black widows... Yeah, you exterminate them because they, they harm you. They do bad things. And the Amalekites are the black widows of the Old Testament. God had given hundreds of years of grace to them, opportunity for them to repent. But this was a tribe of people that God had been patient with but had committed such horrible evils that God commanded Saul to exterminate them. It's the word that he uses. Even, even, even all the livestock. And, and it, was, it was to be such an utter extermination because God had declared that he was going to judge the Amalekites for what they had done. And, and Saul was the sword that God was going to use. 
Um, so Saul went to battle, and he won. And he kind of obeyed a little bit. Uh, he did what God told him to do, except that he spared the king. They, they, they would do that in those days, and they would, they would basically feed that king table scraps underneath the table and treat him like a dog. It was kind of like bringing somebody to your home, and, treat, and they, they were your trophy. And so Saul brings home a trophy. He keeps the king alive. Um, and he also spared the life of all the livestock, or much of the livestock. And here's the dialogue that took place in 1 Samuel 15, verses 10 through 16. It says, The word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried out to the Lord. He cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be the Lord! I have performed the commandment of the Lord! And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? And Saul said, they, they, They've brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we've devoted to destruction. And then Samuel said to Saul, Stop! I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, speak. And Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil? And do what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And Saul said to Samuel, I, I've obeyed the voice of the Lord. I, I've gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. So first thing he does is he denies his sin. excuses it. Verse 21, But the people, he says, took, a, took of the spoil, sheep and the oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction. And so now he blames everybody else around him. Not my fault, it's the people did it. And then he continues and says, in order to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And so he justifies himself and justifies their sin. And Samuel said, and here's, here's our focus, what we're leading to. Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. See, God loved the sacrifices of the Old Testament. They, they had a beautiful purpose of pointing people to our sin and showing us our need for salvation. It, it showed us the temporary provision for our sin until the Messiah would come and He would offer a permanent solution. But in comparison to the beauty of those sacrifices, Samuel points Saul to, the, to what the Lord truly desired for him. God would rather have obedience in the first place instead of all the burnt offerings that Saul claimed that he was going to make. God is more interested in a changed heart than a lifetime of religious rituals that are only skin deep. So over the next few years, God tore that kingdom away from Saul and He gave it to a shepherd boy that's going to be introduced in the next couple chapters. A young boy named David. Yeah, good. See, you guys know all this. Many of you are familiar with David's story and how God...
took pleasure in David because David was a man after God's own heart. It calls him that. He made some huge mistakes. I'm tiny ones, right? Adultery, murder, a census that was blatantly against God's Word. But the difference between Saul and David was that David, when he sinned, it broke his heart. He humbled himself before God. When he sinned, David was an individual who confessed his sin and his heart was broken when he realized how he had disobeyed. And so a few decades after the events of 1 Samuel 15, David penned the words of Psalm chapter 40, which was a song of praise to his God. Look, look at first, the first eight verses with me of Psalm 40. David writes, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclines to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and He set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. Isn't that a beautiful way of expressing the Gospel? Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. So, so essentially, David describes in this psalm the salvation of the Lord and the kind of relationship that God has with those who make Him their trust. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. But here in verse 6, I I believe David's mind goes back to what Samuel said to Saul. To a different king who's failed to trust the Lord. Who failed to make the Lord his trust. And he was proud of his accomplishments. He failed to walk in obedience. And so in verse 6, David continues and says, In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted. Now is he saying that God doesn't care about sacrifices? No, that's not his point. But in comparison, what God really loves is, is a heart that's obedient. And so he says, you have not del- delighted in sacrifices and offerings, but listen to how he says this, but you have given me an open ear. That's, that's a strange one, isn't it? You've given me an open ear. We'll, we'll talk about that here in a second. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you have not required. Then I said, behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. And so David notes again that what truly delights our God is the servant who is willing to walk in obedience to the Master. And he uses an an interesting phrase in verse 6. You've given me an open ear. The the, the literal Hebrew, it almost, really what it says is you've bored a a hole in my ear. That's that's something we don't usually say, do we? That's that's a weird one, isn't it? But I I think what he's doing is he's actually, David, and when he talks about the scroll of the law, uh, the scroll of the book, uh, rather, I I think he's referring back to Exodus 21. He's saying, Exodus 21, that's my heart, God. Exodus 21, that's who I am. I'm willing to obey you. And in Exodus 21, we find this, this obscure law about slavery and servitude where God makes a provision for those Hebrews who sold themselves into slavery. Uh, now, slavery in the Old Testament is very different from the slavery that we're used to in the United States and, and how we experienced it. You see, there weren't bank loans in those days. There weren't credit cards where I could say, oh man, I'm short $1,000 this month, but I can pay it back over the next year. So none, none of that existed. Um, 
There was no, um, no credit cards, no bank loans. So often a person would voluntarily enter the service of another person and they say, hey, I'm going to make myself your slave. That's kind of what you do when you go work at, for your boss, right? And so in a similar way, they would say, I'm going to enslave myself to you for the next six years to pay off this debt. Or they would make an arrangement of a few times. But God's law said, after six years, you let the person go. You're not to keep Hebrew slaves. Your own people. You're, at the seventh year, you let them go free. And so God made this provision within the law that that, that, that indebtedness would only last so long. After six years, the master was supposed to set his Hebrew slave free. But once in a while, a Hebrew slave would say, you know what? I love my master. I, I truly love him. I, mean, I have it better now than I ever did before, before I had, had enslaved myself to him. I, I have it so much better serving this master than I ever had it on my own. I want to stay in service to this man. He's a great boss, and I, and I want to serve him for the rest of my life. And so as a sign of this voluntary choice, the master would then take an, an awl and he would pierce the ear of the man and, and he would remain his slave forever. And it wasn't this system of beating and flogging that we, we think of with slavery. Uh, often, oftentimes it was much like the employment. Sometimes you feel like a slave, don't you? Jerry, do you feel like a slave sometimes? I say that because we work together. Um, and so this slavery was much like we consider employment, but, but in this case, the person would say, I love serving this person, and I am willing to serve them and do whatever they ask me for the rest of my life because I know I have it that good. And so essentially, in Psalm 40, David says to the Lord, God, I want to serve You forever. You have given me an open ear. I'm yours that's what david's saying and that's why he says in verse 8 i delight to do your will it's written in the book of the law that i delight to do your will i you're the kind of master that i i'm going to obey forever several hundred years later when the psalm was then translated into the greek language there's kind of an interesting there's a lot of discussion regarding this passage in hebrews and what's happening here um, for those of you that are familiar with the process of translations um, they called what, what was called the Septuagint. They took the Hebrew Old Testament and around, what was it, 200 years before Christ, 300 years before Christ, they translated the Hebrew into Greek. And, and that translation in many cases was a lot like our NIV. It, it paraphrased and, and tried to get, get the sense of a passage rather than sometimes translating it word for word. And so when they translated that phrase, you, you've bored a hole in my ear, we kind of look at that and go, what? And when they translated that into the Greek, they also said, let's, let's make this clear in how we translate this. And so they translated as, a body you have prepared for me, instead of you have opened my ear. And that Greek translation, again, a lot like our NIV does the translation, they didn't always translate it word for word, but sometimes tried to catch the figure of speech that didn't translate into Greek very well. But the meaning was the same. The Greek version basically was saying, my body is yours, Lord. Not just my ear, all of me. Uh, my body is the means by which your will is accomplished. Use me. And now the author of Hebrews, okay, we're, we come full circle. We're back to Hebrews chapter 10 now. 
The author of Hebrews was familiar with 1 Samuel 15 and how Saul was not interested in obedience. Not complete obedience. He was not interested in serving the Lord. And the author of Hebrews was also familiar with Psalm 40 and he understood that this was David's cry, I'm here to obey. But he takes notice of the Greek translation, which is the version that he actually quotes here in Hebrews. And, and I think he says, Aha! I get it. I see something here. I know somebody else like David who also submitted himself and his body to the Lord's will. I know someone else who said, Lord, here's my body. It's yours. Here's a king high priest who is far different from Saul who had no interest in full obedience. Here is a king high priest, Hebrews says, who, who is far greater than even King David whose obedience was far from perfect. When Christ came into the world, He perfectly obeyed the will of His Father, even to the point that His body was pierced and nailed to a cross. And so Hebrews applies Psalm 40, which was written by David about his own heart attitude. And Hebrews applies Psalm 40 and says Jesus did that too, but even in a more perfect way than David did. And it shows us how Jesus perfectly lived out a life of obedience and the kind of obedience that David was talking about. And by doing so, he offered something that none of the Old Testament sacrifices were ever able to provide. Jesus' sacrifice was obedient. Not only that, but his sacrifice was voluntary. When you took that lamb to the tabernacle and temple, it had no idea what was happening until it saw the knife and helped. Did it go voluntarily? Did it say, ooh, this is fun? Oh, please do more of that. What's happening? It, it wasn't voluntary. It got taken there by somebody else. But contrasted to that, what did Jesus do? He voluntarily, in the heart attitude of Psalm 40, said, Lord, whatever you will. I, I would venture to say also joyfully, because he knew what was before him. And he knew how this would glorify God. And so even though he knew the suffering, he knew the pain, he knew the torment of the cross. He did so obediently. He did so voluntarily. Completely devoted to serving His Father. And continuing the thought that He started back in chapter 9, His sacrifice was also, our verse tells us, once for all. That's much different than the sacrifices of the Old Testament because once you offered that sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, guess what happened to ha have to happen the next year? Same thing. Same high priest or the, or the new one. And they bring another offering and another and another and another for thousands of years. But Jesus' sacrifice was once for all. The blood of Jesus didn't just cover our sins temporarily, but we have been sanctified. There's that word. We, we've been made holy through the offering of His body. That is, through Him, we have been made holy. Note third that Jesus has offered a decisive sacrifice as our high priest. Again, these are concepts that he's already been talking about in the last few chapters, but he's going to drive the point home here. He's not just summarizing though, he's also going to take us back to the main Old Testament passage that really is the, the main passage of Hebrews. That Hebrews is, you know, When I do a sermon, today's sermon is about Hebrews 10, 1-18. Hebrews is doing the same thing. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, is taking Psalm 110, verse 1 in particular, and the entire book is a sermon on Psalm 110. So, not only is he going to summarize everything, but he's going to take us back to that original psalm. Look at verses 11-14. through 14. 
He says, and every high priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until His enemies, and here's Psalm 110, until His enemies should make a footstool for His feet. For by a single offering He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So briefly here, note the contrast that he's making between the Old Covenant and its sacrifices and the New Covenant and the sacrifice of our High Priest. Verse 11, in the Old Covenant, the priests stood daily. Why? Why did they stand daily? Because the work was never done. There was never time to sit down. And, and, and so every day they would stand. In the Old Covenant, they repeatedly made the same sacrifices. In the Old Covenant, those sacrifices could never take away sin, but only covered the sin until a better sacrifice would be made. Contrast this with Jesus. Verse 12, in the New Covenant, Jesus sat down. Why? Because He offered a single sacrifice once for all. And then he went and he sat down at the right hand of God the Father. His work was complete. When Jesus died on the cross, what was the last thing he said? It's finished. It's finished. It's done. There's no no more offering. We're not going to do this again. It's finished. There's no longer a need for sacrifices because Jesus paid it all, as we're going to sing here in a few moments. And by offering such a decisive sacrifice, Jesus has now fulfilled Psalm 110 by sitting at the right hand of God the Father. There He has entered the Holy of Holies in the heavenly temple, and He is awaiting the day when He will accomplish His final victory and His enemies will be be judged, as Psalm 110 prophesied. Additionally, by His single decisive offering, Jesus has perfected His people. In the words of verse 14, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And I want you to notice the tense of that verb. He doesn't say that God will perfect or that God might perfect or that if you're good enough and your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, that hopefully He will perfect. doesn't say any of those things, does He? By Jesus' single offering, He has perfected for all time those who, have, who are being sanctified. Those who are being made into the image of Jesus Christ. Remember that perfect in Hebrews is not pointing to someone with no fault, but those who have come to the desired end that God intended. I, I like how George Guthrie says this. He says, now if we read this statement with our usual definition of perfect in mind, we likely will be either shocked or confused. Christians know that they aren't They are not perfect in the sense of no faults or failings. Yet the term perfect, as used in Hebrews, carries the sense of complete, whole, adequate, having arrived at a desired end. Insofar as Christ has perfected us for all time, it means that by His sacrifice, He has made us completely adequate for a relationship with God by consecrating us. We have arrived at the end that God desired to accomplish via His Son's death on the cross. His work to put us in right relationship with Himself has been made complete. Amen. Praise God. If you found mercy at the cross through faith by God's grace, then your standing before God is already complete. It's done. It's finished. 
That doesn't mean that you are sinless. It doesn't mean that you've arrived and are in your glorified body and you don't sin anymore. We'll look forward to that one day. But your account has been made with God has been made perfect. And He no longer sees your guilt. He no longer sees your sin. He only sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ who died for you. Even while you're going through that process of sanctification and you're becoming more like Jesus each day. Finally, in verses 15-18, to we also find that Jesus, our High Priest, has accomplished complete forgiveness for our sin. Not only has Jesus fulfilled Psalm 110, but He's also initiated the New Covenant, which we've been talking about in Jeremiah 31. Chapter 9 spent a lot of time on, on Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah prophesied that this New Covenant would come. We've been looking at this New Covenant and its promises. But one of the greatest promises of Jeremiah 31 is that God would write His law on tablets of stone that Moses would bring down from the mountain. He'd write them on human hearts. He'd write them in our minds. In other words, it's not just a list of do's and don'ts that you externally follow and you follow these 613 commandments that He's given, but God's Word has been internalized. It's changing me, not from the outside hopefully in, but it's changing me from the inside out. Look at verses 17-18 where he again quotes Jeremiah 31. He says, And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put My laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And then He adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. That's the conclusion of Hebrews right there. That's, that's the main point. I'm going to repeat it. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there's no longer any offering for sin. Friends, here's the climax of Hebrews. We've got some application that we're going to fill out over the next few weeks. But our high priest didn't offer the same imperfect sacrifices of all the other Levitical high priests. He didn't keep bringing the blood of animals that could not take away our sins. Instead, our High Priest, Jesus, obediently, voluntarily, and once for all offered the sacrifice of Himself. Our High Priest, Jesus, was far superior to all the High Priests of the Old Testament because His sacrifice was decisive and complete. Not just the promise of forgiveness one day, but the forgiveness has been accomplished by His grace through our faith. His sacrifice brought about complete forgiveness of our sins. And I don't want you to miss that. Under the Old Covenant, they were saved by grace. They were saved through faith, just like we are. But as they looked forward to the forgiveness that God would one day accomplish. They had not yet experienced the complete forgiveness of sin that you and I experienced the moment that you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. The moment that you repent of your sins and throw yourself at the mercy of the cross. That forgiveness is real. It's done. It's finished. None of the Old Testament saints had that opportunity to experience it in the way that you have. Their sin was merely covered by the blood of bulls and goats. In contrast, under the blood of the New Covenant, our sin has been taken away. Jesus has accomplished complete forgiveness, and so there is no longer any offering for sin that needs to be made every day, every year. Again, I'd like to quote an illustration shared by George Guthrie and close with this before we participate in remembering our Lord's death and communion. A woman named Dona Nusa lay in her casket 
killed in a car accident the day before. Her son Cesar, her daughter, other relatives, and a young woman named Carmelita stood nearby. Tall and dark, Carmelita was dressed this day in simple clothing. The young woman from the interior of Brazil had been adopted into Dona Nusa's family more than two decades earlier. At the time, she was seven years old and an orphan, the product of a prostitute and an unnamed father. Moved by compassion, Dona Nusa intervened, taking little Carmelita into her family. When almost everyone else had left the funeral chapel, Carmelita stayed behind, weeping quietly at the side of the casket, earnestly, tenderly. She leaned over the coffin of her adopted mother, caressing it gently, and she voiced her goodbye with, Oh, Brigida. Oh, Brigida. Thank you. Thank you. Dona Nusa had reached out and given Carmelita a life that the little orphan had no ability to craft for herself. Pure graciousness. We should weep, for God has given us the freedom, the forgiveness, the life which we could not win for ourselves. Our tears are not tears of separation, but tears of homecoming. Not tears of death, but tears of life. Not tears of a past, but tears falling on a bedrock of hope for the future. Our sins have been taken away, and we, through the accomplishment of another, have been brought to the Father and incorporated into His family forever. This is the Gospel. Father in Heaven, we do come before You and we recognize the incredible graciousness which You have poured into us. We thank You for Your Son, Jesus Christ, who made an offering on our behalf. Not one that He has to repeat. Not one that we need to repeat. Not one that we can accomplish in any way ourselves, but an offering of Himself. He died on the cross for our sins. so that our sins could be forgiven completely. Lord, we thank You. We thank You that You are such a good God. We thank You that You are a God who, like in the Old Testament, You long to be with us. You long to be in relationship with us. You've tabernacled among us. But we thank You that our High Priest has gone into the heavenly places and we await Him. We look forward to Him coming through back out again and appearing. Coming again not to make another offering, but to bring about complete salvation. To bring about His kingdom. To bring about the judgment of Your enemies. To bring Satan to an end. To defeat sin once and for all. And to completely obliterate it. Thank You that You've called us to be Your own. Your children. You've adopted us into your family. It's in Jesus' precious name we ask and pray this. Amen.